Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. This week on the podcast, we've got a special episode with Future Generation. The Future Generation companies are set up to provide investors with exposure to a group of leading Australian and global fund managers, while also providing charities with a stream of annual donations. First up, we'll be chatting to Louise Walsh, CEO of both Future Generation companies, and we'll be chatting to her a bit about their charitable work and about their achievements over the last 12 months. Then we'll be talking with two of the fund managers who provide their services to Future Generation free of fees. We've got June Bei Lu, Portfolio Manager at Tribeca Investment Partners, and we'll also be talking with Tony Waters, Principal and Portfolio Manager at QVG Capital. We'll discuss the outlook for the Australian housing market, how to invest in resources producers without speculating on commodity prices, and they each tell us about a false narrative in the market that gets on their nerves. As always, we'll finish up with our favourite questions, including which company they'd own if the market were to close for five years. Finally, if you're loving the rules of investing, why not tell someone about it? Pick your favourite episode and send it to a friend, or just head on over to iTunes and hit subscribe. Either way, you're helping to increase the profile of the podcast and therefore the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Louise, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Patrick. Uh, It's great to have you on. I wonder if you could explain uh, a little bit about what Future Generation has achieved in the last 12 months uh, since we spoke to you last. Could you give us some of the key stats and figures? Well, Patrick, it's been a particularly busy uh, 12 months and especially busy uh, last six months. But just on the performance side of things, importantly, firstly with FGX, um, the outperformance has actually been 2.8% since inception. Um, And with FGG, the global equities company, in the last 12 months, that outperformance has been 3.5%. So FGG in particular has had a really strong uh, last 12 months. The other interesting stats are that on the... um, savings front, savings from the foregone management and performance fees from the fund managers. Uh, If we look first at FGX, those savings have been $6.9 million in the last 12 months, and that well and truly outweighs the annual donation uh, from FGX, which is $4.3 million, and that's going to youth at risk charities this year. With FGG, those savings from the foregone management and performance fees are $5.4 million, well and truly outweighing the $3.6 million, which is the donation uh, to, to charity this year to youth mental health. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, why don't you tell us a bit of a story about one of the achievements that Future Generation, either the global or Australian, has managed to get under its belt this year? Well, the single biggest one has definitely been the capital raisings. So we've actually done share purchase plans and placements for both companies. So we actually did uh, FGG first in September, October, and we were successful in raising an additional $128 million. $97 million of that came from a placement and $30.8 million came from a share purchase plan. So particularly strong demand from existing investors or shareholders. 
with FGX literally last Friday. We've just finished a capital raising, similarly a share purchase plan and a placement for FGX, and we raised $52.1 million. Now, that was a pleasing result with FGX considering the current volatility of the market. In fact, we announced that uh, capital raising on the 8th of October, and of course, the market went particularly wobbly uh, on the 11th of October. So it was, it was, it was tough raising money in that environment. Of course, that means more of that 1% annual donation going to all those great charities that you guys all support as well, which is is great to hear. Well, we are an investing podcast and the companies that you you are the CEO of, uh, although they are set up to, to benefit charities, they're also set up for investors. I was wondering... You get access to all these amazing fund managers, both from overseas and and here, and manage both overseas and here. What do you reckon is the best investing lesson that you've picked up from one of these managers? Well, I think from my perspective, you know, I, I have invested. I've you know in the past, and and I've been now running these two companies for four years, but. The important thing that I've uh, learnt and and I acknowledge having run FGX and FTG is that I'm happy to trust others uh, to do it for me. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, uh, trusting them to pick the best. I mean, relying on very reliable investment committees to do their job properly, and it's it's hard doing it yourself. And secondly, it's very time consuming to do it yourself. So for me, that's the big lesson. Rather than doing it myself, I'm now relying on. Um, you know, others to to help me out with their expertise. Yeah, certainly sounds like a good one. There's no doubt that even those of us who love doing it ourselves, you you have to acknowledge the time and the effort that goes into it. And if you're not getting the pleasure out of doing it yourself, then um, then it often seems like uh, handing it over to somebody else is 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 a good approach. Absolutely, and also the diversification. I mean, I love the fact that here that I'm not necessarily relying on one single manager. Um, we've got an array of them in FGX and FGG, and you'll hear from two of them very shortly. Uh, but to me, that's that's a key attraction, particularly in, in volatile times. Well, I think that's a, a very convenient segue. Thanks for coming on, and we're going to talk to two of those managers now. Thanks very much, Patrick, and for your support at Livewire. We're here now with uh, June Bay and Tony from Tribeca Investment Partners and QVG Capital, respectively. June Bay and Tony, great to have you on the show. Great uh, to be thanks. here. Thank Glad you. Here. Well, let's start with a bit of the, uh, the the big picture scenario. We've just been through a fairly major correction over the last month or six weeks. And as hard as it's been for the large caps, it's been even worse for small caps, which I know is what both of you specialise in. The small ordinaries and the emerging companies indexes have been down significantly harder than the larger companies. And we've seen some small cap managers going from mid-20s in their performance numbers to all of a sudden they're sitting on single digits, which must be rough both for the managers and, and the investors. So why do you think it is that the small caps have fared so much worse in this current correction? Let's start with you, Junbei. Well, I think what's interesting is during that type of environment, especially in the risk-off environment, um, you will see the global liquidity, which is all the money capital that's flowing um, in the previous bull market into the smaller um, cap uh, space has been withdrawn and put into safer stock, which is a larger, or either taken out of the market and put into larger market. So um, historically, if you look at the correlation between the capital flow from small to large, uh, it's always linked with the market risk on risk-off. So in the risk environment, people 
people take their money away from the smaller cap and the micro cap into more safer companies that deliver dividend that is uh, going to deliver um, uh, sort of stable earnings growth going forward. So that tend to be the driver of um, of that performance. Tony, is that agree with your assessment of the case or are there other dynamics that you're seeing at play here? Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, Junbei has explained it pretty well. Um, you know, it's it's worth making a simple point at the, at the start, you know, before October that, um, you know, the discount rate that normally applies to small caps uh, had narrowed um, somewhat. Um, you know, two months later now, it's 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 probably at a wider than average discount. Um, and, you know, there are a few reasons from, from my perspective. You know, first, first of all, liquidity in the small cap space. You know, when we're seeing some... Uh, mandate selling coming through from uh, wholesale uh, mandates that, uh, you know, the liquidity in the small cap space means it has a uh, a larger effect in terms of share price performance on, on stocks that are being sold. Uh, and in the last month, in, in November in particular, you know, we've seen the banks have actually bounced off, you know, multi-year lows post-paying Royal Commission. And given that's such a big weight in the in the large cap space, uh, but not you don't have that exposure to small cap space, you've had that relative performance gap as well, which has supported large caps. So, given the cheap valuations that we're see, seeing out there now compared to a couple of months ago, Tony, are you an active buyer in the market at the moment? Uh, yes, but it's really a, a, a change up in terms of where we're seeing attraction. I mean, effectively, you know, the opportunities that we're seeing has really flipped on its head uh, and it's really come down to stocks that have been, um, you know, uh, ad- adversely sold well below what we think is uh, is a reasonable value for these stocks. And so we're seeing some great opportunities at the moment. Um, so, yes, we're, we're actively uh, buying, but uh, we're also uh, managing that through some uh, transition out of other stocks, which uh, perhaps don't see, uh, we don't see that opportunity. How about you, June Bay? Are, are you out there in the market at the moment? Well, absolutely. We are seeing a lot of opportunity, pretty much similar to uh, to what Tony has talked about. Um, a lot of company for many years, we looked at it, we loved the fundamental, we loved the idea, but unfortunately, we're just too expensive. But now with the market correction, they're actually providing great opportunity um, to take position in those companies that will deliver you good growth going forward. Now, um, I think one important thing is, um, you know, don't uh, shy away from, um, you know, finding those companies um, just because the share price is sort of going the wrong direction. Um, take a slightly longer term view because these companies could potentially still underperform uh, for some time. But, uh, you know, take at least 12 to a 24 month view and these companies would deliver a very strong performance. Well, let's stay with the sell off, but let's switch to a different area that's been suffering particularly tough lately, which is Chinese equities. They're now down about 25 percent from their highs earlier this year, which is one of the biggest falls we've seen in, in many years. The attention, of course, has been turning to the economy with the trade wars and, you know, there's some speculation Mm. that we'll see a big slowdown in the Chinese economy. So, first of all, I mean, how does the China factor and your view on what's happening in China affect how you're analysing ASX stocks? 
Yeah, it's fascinating. Look, um, the fortune of a lot of Australian companies and sectors is very much linked to um, to what's happening in China. Um, uh, of course, globally also, but China has a very big play um, for our economy. Um, you know, of course, there's resources as well as a newly developed sector, which is more exposed to the Chinese consumer front. Um, now, of course, markets becoming a little bit concerned that the Chinese growth has slowed down. But don't forget, it is a 13 trillion US dollar economy and it's growing at 6.5 percent uh, real. And look, this is still very high growth rate. <laughs> this compares with the US, um, you know, growing at just over 4 percent, um, you know, real terms. Uh, it, this is a very strong growth rate. So, um, look, it's slowing um, and uh, the government is going through a bit of a transition in that economy. Um, but the underlying forces is still there. And uh, the government at the economy is still transitioning into that consumer-oriented uh, sort of economy rather than more construction or fixed asset investment type of uh, type of business, so a type of economy. So what that means is that it's actually really beneficial for Australian companies that have the vision or the products and the connections as well as the um, has been investing in that type of, uh, in that sort of market to, uh, um, you know, to be leveraged to that sort of growth. Chinese consumer is still growing at more than 9% a year, uh, consumer spending. Um, you know, in 10, 12 years time, uh, the middle class in China were, uh, their spend, total spending will hit $11 trillion. Uh, <laughs> big numbers, I know. Um, this compares to the Australian uh, total GDP at one point odd $1.7 trillion. So big numbers. And it's important for Australian company to continue to invest in those areas. But short term, there's a little bit of volatility, given that economy is slowing somewhat. Um, but we do hope that um, what's on the horizon is some sort of trade deal. And of course, uh, government will, uh, will continue to support the consumer sector in China. So is it safe to infer from what you've said then that Maybe you think Australian investors shouldn't be all too concerned about the current conditions in China and maybe take a longer term view? Oh, absolutely. Australian investors absolutely should take a long term view for China um, because it is an economy going through transition and all these transition will take at least 12 months to play out. Um, and, um, you know, it's very hard to take a short-term view such as three months because it's going to be volatile. So uh, in my opinion, um, you know, it offers lots of opportunity. Um, you just have to take a longer-term view. Great. Well, look, Tony, let's turn to you for a minute. I know that your fund has at least one position in a resources company. But your uh, your co-portfolio manager and, and the other founder of the firm, Chris Prunty, has said uh, that you don't take views on commodities. So I'm curious about how you go about assessing the potential risk and reward and the value on offer when you don't necessarily have a view on the commodity that that resources company sells. Yeah, I mean, we look at the sector like any other sector. It's really about the return on capital that the uh, the company uh, can return uh, to investors, and uh, you know the the outlook in terms of uh, its production outlook and uh, and life of mine um, that it has in the particular commodity. Um, so, you know, for us, um, you know, it's about uh, producing companies uh, and the margin that those those companies are making for for shareholders. So you'd be looking, I guess, at the at the current price of the commodity without looking at, you know, what it might go to in the future when you're assessing what the margins might be. Yeah, I mean, it's a cyclical sector, so you know, 
what's really important is where they sit on the, the cost curve of the particular commodity that they're producing. You know, suffice to say that in the, if the first quartile of that cost curve, then they should be able to ride the cycle. Um, you know, ov- obviously there's going to be ebbs and flows in that based on the commodity price, um, but... Uh, you know, if if the company uh, is, does have that margin uh, and does have a good deposit and is productive in terms of uh, um, its uh, its operations, then uh, you know it holds it in good stead. So the company, of course, that I was referring to there is Aurelia Minerals, which is a a gold producer. I'm just curious, where do they fall on the uh, on the cost curve? Are they right down in that first quartile, like you're looking for? Yeah, Aurelia is a really unique. Uh, business in so far as that it's a, a, a multi-commodity producer is the nature of the deposits that it has now near Cobar in New South Wales. So um, if you look at it as a pure gold producer um, and then look at the uh, uh, cost base below that, then they're significantly lower cost producer than, say, the uh, the Western Australian gold producers uh, because of the, the byproduct credits they get out of commodities such as copper, uh, lead, zinc uh, and silver. Uh, and uh, you know, on that basis, uh, you know, they're they're producing uh, around about, uh, depending on the price, those commodities, six to eight hundred dollars uh, per ounce of gold, versus typically, you know, nine hundred to eleven hundred, you know, for some of the comps that we're seeing uh, elsewhere. So yeah, I mean, that's it's quite unique from that perspective. Uh, there was a, a great catalyst there for that business when they uh, bought Peak Hill, uh, which was an adjacent uh, producing mine, and they got a payback of that within six months. So that was a a fantastic acquisition for those guys. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit hearing about that of some of the early purchases that Northern Star made uh, a few years ago. Very, very short payback periods and um, they've turned out very well for that company. Yeah, look, that's a good example. It's a, it's a great point. And, and that's the point. You know, it comes down to how the company's allocating its capital and returns that it gets from that and then the ability to be able to leverage on that in, to, in terms of what, you know, the share price and ability to raise money at, uh, at cheap rates of capital to be able to continue to, to allocate well for shareholders. All right. Well, Junbei, let's turn back to you for a, a little while. I know at Tribeca you have some strong views on the Australian housing market. I was wondering, obviously, with prices falling, auction clearance rates are well and truly in the ditch at this point. They're, I think they're the lowest on record, or if they're not, they're pretty close to it. We've got tightening of credit from the banks. And I mean, we could sit here and list factors that, that have been discussed in, in the media all day. So it's probably no real surprise that investors and homeowners uh, are concerned about the about the market at the moment. Do you see any potential negative influences out there which haven't yet been felt by the market or discussed widely in the media, or it, are they all pretty much out on the table now? Look, I think what's we kind of need to separate what's being out in the media and what has really been felt um, in the economy and by the consumer, um, by that matter. Um, so, you know, media has talked a lot about um, the auction clearance rate, the negativity, and of course, the bank has pulled back in terms of the lending, um, you know, so there's a lot of negative media stories around now. But what you, when you actually see what's actually has come through, um, you know, in terms of the housing construction, uh, yes, the building approval 
Singapore has fallen has been falling uh, over the last 12 to 18 months, um, but the activity itself is continuing, uh, but at a much slower rate. Uh, but going forward, we see that will continue to slow. So, um, you know, the actual impact from that slowing housing uh, is going to be felt over the next few years. And that is uh, perhaps one of the bigger concerns. So we've got the media talking about it, but the real impact is to be coming through now. Um, another thing which is a little bit worrying, of course, um, is for the consumer front. Look, consumer has a lot of debt um, and uh, savings rates, um, you know, at all time low. Um, and, um, you know, their energy cost is going up. Their, um, you know, interest rate is going higher as the banks has repriced a lot of their, um, you know, the mortgages um, to cover some of the funding costs we've seen. Um, you know, so the living cost is going higher for a consumer that's heavily indebted. So that is the issue. Um, now we, we're still hoping that, uh, you know, stronger terms of trade, um, the commodity price will hold there um, to provide some sort of wage um, inflation to help the consumer through this period. But so far, we have not actually seen any of that to come through for the consumer to manage through this period. We've seen a little bit of wage growth, but mainly through the minimum wage through the awards. Um, and it's mainly cent- uh, cent- uh, well, uh, around Victoria area. So um, so the consumer is going to be very challenge- challenged. And so what that means is that um, the discretionary dollar is going to be very tight. Consumers going to think about what they're going to spend on. Um, and uh, that in turn is going to affect, um, you know, the upcoming uh, Christmas or important Christmas period. Um, so to us, that is a, a, a sort of quite a high risk sector. Um, and another area, so we talked about before is the builders, um, you know, in terms of the construction and activity. Um, you know, we've seen those sectors come off in terms of valuation, um, but the real earnings impact is to come. So, you know, very hard to see those sectors outperform in the environment where their earnings will be going lower and lower every year over the next few years. Um, and uh, and actually, um, what's one of the most interesting side is that Obviously, real estate um, clearance rate is uh, is lowering. Um, I think you talked about it's being lowest, um, you know, in many years. In fact, um, you know, the the, the lowest it ever achieved was in the eighties, uh, and uh, um, and this is the second lowest period. So, um, you know, it is really tough, and the listing numbers is continue to fall. Um, and uh, what's interestingly is that um, you know. Companies, some tech companies uh, such as realestate.com is still trading at very, very big multiple uh, compared to um, to you know to the rest of the market. Um, even given uh, even with the market fall off, um, you know realestate.com, domain uh, domain, um, both are still trading at the premium. Um, and um, you know for in the environment where the earning is going to be quite challenged over the next few years, um, that to us is not going to be sustainable. Um, that valuation is going to be quite challenge. So we see all these sectors and companies will be under increasing pressure as the earning downgrade start to come through in the next 12 months. You mentioned construction there, and I think there's a really interesting dynamic going on in the construction market in that currently, or at least recently, uh, construction employment as a percentage of total employment in Australia has been up over 10%, which is uh, I believe an all-time record, or again, Mm. if it's not an all-time record, it's very close to it. And 75% of those have been working in residential construction. Now, it seems to me, everybody's got a very, uh, it seems, benign outlook about unemployment. But if we've got 10% of our our employees working in construction 
and obviously there's there's some negative views on the on the future for for residential housing construction. What does it mean for those you know seven and a half percent of employees that are going to be working in this sector that's going through a downturn? And what does it mean for the broader economy if if we do see uh, layoffs in that industry? <laughs> Look, I was hoping to talk um, positively about the economy, but unfortunately these are the big risks faced by our economy at this point. Um, you know, um, all these construction workers need to find jobs, and the retail, which retail um, a retailing sector is normally the largest employer of uh, of people, they are not firing because consumers doing tough. So these people will really struggle to transition. What can save them? Well, potentially, if government in- really uh, removes some of the bottleneck for increase in fiscal spend, so essentially the uh, infrastructure, um, you know, we keep seeing that, uh, you know, the potential demand for in- infrastructure uh, is huge over the next 20 years. However, it keeps getting pu- pushed out uh, further and further, and that is challenging. Um, and, uh, you know, if tho- those... Uh, um, a project doesn't come off. Um, these a lot of people may well be, um, you know, part of the unemployed uh, population, and that is a very big risk for our economy because, um, you know, one of the trigger for fall or um, uh, in GDP is really about employment. That's when people when people lose their jobs, they um, they really stop spending. You know, um, when they start worrying about their jobs and seeing their neighbors losing their job, they will really cut back on everything they do. So that it will be a very very big challenge challenging environment. Um, you know, we do hope we can manage it through, but it is, um, it, it's increasingly likely at this point. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. You said you wanted to share some positives. So I, I actually want to hear, hear some of those positives from you, if that's okay. But I'd be curious, Tony, did you have anything you wanted to add on, on this topic? Do you guys take a view on the housing market at QVG or are you happy just to step back and, and ignore the macro situation? Well, we don't have stocks that are directly uh, exposed to that, but we do have some significant exposure to, to retail. So I, I will add, um, I think everything that, that Junbei has, has said is, is correct, but I don't think it's the whole picture. We're, we're a bit more positive uh, in terms of the consumer. It's also worth noting that it was only a month or so ago that it became a bit of a political issue in terms of where petrol prices were going, and yet the oil price since then has been smashed effectively, and we've had quite a precipitous drop uh, in in oil uh, now coming through to the Bowser. So that is uh, an offsetting factor, and likewise, if you look at the CPI data, there are the further offsetting factors. For example, childcare has become a lot cheaper. So if you look at the overall budget for the consumer, uh, yes, absolutely, um, energy uh, is an issue, but uh, there are offsetting factors. Uh, in terms of construction, you know, as Jumbe pointed out, you know, there uh, we're, we're having a significant uh, boom in infrastructure. That's going to be ongoing for the next two to three years. Uh, so it's not all doom and gloom from a construction construction point of view. It's just uh, particular segments of construction is 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 changing. Uh, and then another key component is the strong immigration that we're having in the country, and it's going to be very interesting coming into an election uh, next year as to the debate around that because, you know, we are having to fill, um, you know, find homes for, you know, two two 250,000 people a year. And that's certainly helped uh, um, construction as well. So, um, yeah, look, uh, there's no doubt that credit conditions uh, have, have got tighter through regulation effectively and through APRA. Uh, and, and we're definitely seeing that. And I think there's another leg to go there in terms of house price falls. Uh, but that is very much uh, uh, Sydney and Melbourne related. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think uh, in balance, um, you know, there's some positives as well. 
All right. Uh, before we finish off on the uh, on the consumer and the Australian housing market, Junbei, do you have anything to add to that on the positive side of things? You mentioned um, that you had a, you wanted to speak positively about the economy, so here's your chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tony pretty much summed up for me. Look, there is um, positive sides, which is we I just spoke before, um, you know, on this infra, uh, infrastructure spend. So if that does come through, um, you know, um, that will provide a fair bit of stimulus into the economy. Um, but unfortunately, um, a lot of projects just getting delayed. Um, we keep seeing that big demand chart getting pushed out further and further. Um, in terms of the, um, you know, sector, you know, retail sector, for example, um, the good thing that the thing that's really going for them is that they are very, very cheap. Uh, the valuations are all time low and the like. But look, remember retailers every day when they open their door, they don't have any contracted customer walking in. Every day it starts from zero. So they need to have something special about them to attract that very customer into the store and spend more than what they spent last year. So and so that in this sort of environment, you really want to be in the retailer that really have a special format that attract customers um, rather than, um, you know, a top format where it's dated, um, you know, it hasn't re- really reinvested because customer is going to be very choosy. So I think, um, you know, the thing to take away from this is that um, it's going to be very stock specific. So you will find little gems in uh, in the whole sector. You may be underway uh, sectors such as retail and others, but you will find little gems that will be doing very well because they're rolling out stores, they're because they are, you know, for example, um, have something that's so special about them that they will do well. Well, I was going to ask you for a uh, a stock that you were shorting or avoiding to express your your views on the on the housing market and the consumer, but it sounds like you're a little bit more positive than I thought you might have been. So I'm going to leave it open. You can give us a long or a short. What's something that you're buying or selling to express your current views on the housing market and the Australian consumer? Look, to be honest, um, um, I I will actually use the short idea. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, look, okay, I'm I'm pretty sure Tony will add in the long idea. Um, so look, to me, um, the company I brought out before, which is realestate realestate.com, um, to me, the valuation is not right for this point of cycle. I think it's a great company. It's done an amazing job. Um, it has a lot of uh, lever to pull, for example, to mitigate um, you know the, the the current fall in the listings. Um, however, um, you know earnings growth is going to be quite challenged and with a multiple that's way could even currently actually double what the market multiple is it's just too high so to me this company is very vulnerable at this point tony have you got any long ideas out there that you think kind of represent your current views on the uh on the australian consumer okay well let's uh let's um have a look at retail and uh, jumbay mentioned you know some of these things are are pretty cheap at the moment Uh, one that we do really like at the moment is a company called City Chic. Uh, it's a company that forty uh, percent of its revenue is is online, and uh, not just a, a Australian consumers, but very much a global consumer. It's very much a, a, a niche fashion, female fashion segment within the plus size category, uh, and is very dedicated and uh, to, to to that customer base, and is getting. Um, very good traction uh, in the US through uh, wholesale to department stores and also direct through online uh, and is starting to see an emerging opportunity in Europe and then even in Australia, you know, at their recent AGM guidance, they're doing high single digit um, same store sales. Uh, so very strong indication in terms of the health of that business and there's still a store rollout opportunity ahead uh, domestically as well. 
uh, and uh, you know it's uh, uh, very very light from a, a, a capital uh, perspective to to have to roll out those stores and and, and uh, achieve that growth. So uh, it's and uh, you know it's it's underinvested we think by some of our peers in the market, uh, and that's always good to uh, feel we find those opportunities ahead of uh, ahead of the market. So uh, that's that's one that we still. Uh, quite disposed towards. I think they had a, a fairly major shift in their uh, in their product offering recently. Did they? Did I can't recall if they sold a whole bunch of there stores. There was a or di- they yeah. Bought them. So uh, the old business is specialty fashion, uh, and uh, it's an interesting deal. It appears to have been uh, to this point in time a win-win for both parties. So Noni B uh, bought the other categories. Um, um, so Miller's Retail, uh, Crossroads, uh, a couple of brands uh, that, that 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 within that group uh, or that portfolio business that Noni B bought for them, uh, was a good deal because they get the wholesale benefit across a, a much broader range and um, have some synergies and from an overhead space. Uh, and for um, especially fashion, which is now City Chick, it's a focus on the one brand that was uh, doing well for them. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, it seems to have worked today. Almost like a spin-off story in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, Tony, your co-PM and the other firm principal, Chris Prunty, uh, in a recent interview with Livewire, said that you've got a bit of a bugbear with the narrative about automated trading. I was wondering, could you tell us what is the narrative that bothers you and why is it wrong? Uh, I don't have a problem with automated trading per se, it's really more to do with, uh, you know, the narrative around, um, you know, artificial intelligence and uh, how effectively it's all going to do us all out of a job as fund managers. So, you know, what we're really talking about there is a more sophisticated element of quantitative based uh, models, uh, which have been around for decades. uh, And no doubt will become a more prevalent part of, uh, of, of the market. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, funds management is is about trust and how much do you trust a black box? You know, it's it's worth pointing out that uh, you know, if, if robots are going to take over funds management, um, you know, at at this point in time, if you look at the big quant based strategies, is there's, there's typically an army of humans behind that programming in. Uh, uh, Opportunities in in the market to exploit. So uh, you know it's uh, yeah the, the there's there's definitely room and increasing room for those those guys. But uh, you know the narrative in terms of you know whether it's a binary outcome, it's uh, it's 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 not not the case from our point of view. They're just one of many participants in the market. June Bay, how about you? Uh, is there a particular false narrative that within the markets, either you know right now or over the longer term, that gets on your nerves a bit and that you feel is wrong? How long do you have? <laughs> uh, I reckon we've got a couple of minutes. <laughs> I'll talk fast. Look, I think when you think about those quantitative uh, managers, all they're trying to do is that when they design the signals and the like, what they're trying to do is to replicate what we do as fundamental investors. They essentially, and, and they apply that across a large number of stocks. So, um, And then they created AI and the like, trying to really do that without um, the people behind it. Um, but what they're trying to do is like what we do. Now, in the environment where 
the market essentially just going one direction in the past pretty much five, eight years, um, it was easy for that kind of, you know, investment because, um, you know, you put in one particular factor, for example, growth, you would have delivered a very strong return. And then so these funds have seen a huge amount of inflow into, um, you know, in, into that type of funds. Um, it makes the fundamental investor kind of look less uh, less shiny in, uh, in that way. Um, but I think what's, um, you know, what's fascinating is the current volatility in the market. Um, quite a lot, a big part of it is actually created by uh, a lot of those funds, whether it's a quant fund, whether it's trend following. So, uh, you know, the market falling two, uh, two, uh, three days in a row, they'll be selling, you know, that type of fund, CTA funds. Um, so, you know, these actually magnify the volatility. Um, and, um, and then during that sort of environment, it actually is really good for stock pickers. Because eventually, when that volatility sort of smooth out and when the investor confidence comes back, what they're going to put their money in is not to follow the trend because the trend clearly is not working now. Um, what they're going to do, uh, what the company is going to outshine is the company that will actually deliver the earnings. Uh, so when the result season comes, whoever's going to outperform on consensus expectations with a reasonable valuation will go higher. So this is when fundamental investors will step in. It is a stock picker's market. And so um, I actually think it's, it's quite an exciting period for all of us to deliver very strong performance um, and to be able to allocate capital to company that will uh, really deliver, um, you know, growth and, um, you know, really to generate benefit for the society um, on that front. As they say, volatility is the friend of the active investor. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, that's the main part of the interview for now, but we've got three of my favourite questions, which I like to go over with every one of our guests. Um, so if you're happy to, to stick around for a few more minutes, we can go over those now. Of course. Excellent. Um, we'll start with you, uh, Junbei. Uh, could you share with us something that you've read recently? It could be a book, uh, uh, an article, a piece of research uh, that really impressed you, that really blew you away. Look, um, there's quite a lot of books, but this one really stood out for me. It's called uh, Thinking uh, Thinking Fast and Slow um, by the uh, very famous uh, behavioral economist, um, Daniel Kahneman. Um, he won the Nobel Prize for, um, you know, behavioral economy, uh, econo uh, yeah, uh, economics. I make that same mistake all the time, don't worry. <laughs> That's right. uh, look, uh, so look, the, uh, the book is very interesting. It's interesting to look at as how, you know, how our brain works and Function. And it explains a lot as in, you know, especially when we make investment decisions. So you talk about the two systems um, within our brain, the, you know, the fast thinking system, which is very emotional, uh, less rational, uh, draw upon quick, you know, quick decision upon some your current experiences. And then the, the system two, where you do more logical thinking, um, you know, sort of more cool sort of thinking, uh, but slower um, sort of system. So, um, you know, and it's fascinating as in, um, you know, when you look at the in investor behavior, um, so many times when we see a announcement, your immediate reaction is that system one, uh, which is highly emotive. Uh, you know, you, you're reacting to, um, you know, uh, the fear of loss or, um, you know, um, you know, or, you know, selling too early. A lot of those behavioral biases uh, without really thinking, um, you know, what's really changed fundamentally for that stock. So, um, you know, the book is really good in summarizing all of that and for you to see some of the uh, biases that we all have um, as a fundamental 
fundamental investors um, really help us to, um, you know, to really construct our investment thesis um, and then to train that system one um, sort of um, behavior to be much more like the system two, but in a faster way, hopefully. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. And mm. I think the challenge for me has always been trying to uh, to actually take the theory and put it into action. It's so, mm. it's so it seems so intuitive, but actually trying to change your behavior is such a challenge at times. Absolutely. You've got to keep training yourself every single time. I think that's the challenge. Tony, how about you? What have you got for us in terms of something to read? Book or an article or yeah, something else? <laughs> well, the one that stands out to me, uh, in fact, we liked it so much that whenever we go substantial in a company, we give it to the, the chairman and CEO, is, is a book called The Outsiders by William Thorndike. Uh, and the reason why uh, uh, I like it so much is, uh, you know, it's 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 a, a showcase of, of businesses or managers of, of businesses that aren't necessarily high growth businesses, and and in many respects, uh, well, some of them had significant issues within the business, uh, but through good stewardship of capital uh, and management, they've, they've, they were uh, very successful listed companies over a long period of time. And it really comes down to, you know, what makes good management and how you allocate applicants capital in the business that you don't have to be necessarily a high growth business to still, um, you know, deliver outstanding results for your shareholders. So, you know, whether that's through buybacks, the appropriate time or through good M&A or, 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 or spin-offs of underperforming businesses or, or what have you. There's some great textbook examples of, of great management and great allocators of capital. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great read. Excellent. I'll get links to both of those books um, and we'll put them up in the wire for the podcast so that the readers can find them and check them out for themselves. Um, Tony, we'll stay with you for a little bit. Uh, if you could go back in time to when you were finishing school or university and give yourself just one piece of investing advice, what would it be? Uh, well, look, very simply, it's it's never too early to start investing and uh, let the uh, the formula of compound interest work its magic as soon as possible. That's what I would say. Excellent. And June Bay, how about yourself? Look, <laughs> um, one big piece of advice for myself would be don't panic. Um, look, so often uh, we've seen it again and again in, um, you know, through my entire career is that so many high return um, investments um, that you can make lots of money from are during those periods when everyone's panicking, um, you know, thinking the world is going to fall apart. This is when you actually make most of your uh, return. And, uh, you know, these are the time where you really step up and saying, I've done my homework. I know this company is doing well, um, you know, with all these changes, assumptions, it will do great. So, you know, and then just don't be afraid, um, you know, take that position, take a 12 month view, don't take three months, three months is never going to work. Take a 12 month view and to, or even longer, and uh, you will have your return and be very disciplined. Because, you know, once you made your return, make sure you do sell some. Uh, so that will be the advice I give to myself. Again, we'll stay with you, Junbei. Uh, if the market was going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, uh, I'll ask you what it would be. But before I do so, I'm just going to put in a little bit of a disclaimer that I like to say every time. Um, we're not actually suggesting to people that they go out and they put all of their share, all of their money in a single share and put it in the bottom drawer for five years. Um, don't try this at home. It is supposed to be a bit of fun and an exercise in long-term thinking. So with that being said, uh, what would be your company to own? 
Look, I'm going to be very boring. This company um, has delivered tremendous amount of growth um, and it is still projected to deliver more growth um, in the foreseeable future. And this company, it's a large cap. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a growth is essentially underpinned by trying to keep up with the demand because, you know, there's just so much demand there. People keep finding uh, uh, more, more ways of using its product um, and, the, and this company is global. Um, look, this company is CSL. Um, you know, uh, it is a large cap, but this is the company that will continue to deliver you that double-digit growth. Now, there's a lot of other therapies coming up and the like, but this company continuously reinvests in this business. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, it's uh, uh, it's uh, the key idea they always talked about is to deliver the best product at the lowest price, and they've stick to that um, the theme and they never steered away from it. So they invested um, in collection center in different distribution channels. Globally, and um, now that you you can see um, it's outshining its competitors. When demand is in the double digits, um, the competitors just couldn't keep up, and this is the only company that could do that. Um, it's uh, um, now that it's got operations all over the world. People keep finding um, you know new ways of using IG, um, you know, and um, you know things such as uh, for Alzheimer's and the, the others like so. Um, lot of opportunity for this company. It's not that expensive relative to its previous um, uh, valuation. And um, and it's a quality company that will be around in five years to generate growth for you. Tony, how about you? If you were, if you were in one share for five years, what would it be? I'm going to say zero. Uh, and uh, yeah, originated in New Zealand, but uh, now only listed on EASX. So just like Crowded House, we'll claim them. Um, but uh, you know what? What I love about that this stock is, even though it's seen as highly priced at the moment, there's so many other avenues or conduits for revenue uh, outside the, the the core, but 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 very attractive uh, revenue stream of uh, software as a service or subscription revenue. So 100% recurring revenue base. They are now cash flow positive, uh, global opportunity. Uh, we use actually the product in our own business, in our own small cap funds management business, uh, and you know very low uh, churn rates. So um, you know very much a 90% plus repeat customer base. Uh, and uh, you know we we see on a five year basis that this will continue to grow very strongly uh, and at very high rates of return. What are the penetration rates like for zero at the moment? How far how far down that runway are they? Uh, still relative. Well, depends on what country you're looking at. I mean, New Zealand, it's uh, yeah they're they're well down that run runway. Australia, uh, you know, uh, probably two thirds. Through through that growth path and uh, and and less so in uh, in UK which they're doing very well, uh, US is 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 a lot more competitive market there. Um, they've got a, a significant competitor in, in Intuit, but uh, making some headway. So, uh, but you know even if it's well penetrated, there's a lot more revenue making opportunities through links into suppliers or finance, uh, you know, banks, uh, uh, as an example, where they can clip the ticket and, and, and make money for, for ease of use for a, for a, a small and medium business. Excellent. Well, that's actually it for today. Uh, thanks to both of you for coming in and it's been great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Great. Thanks, Patrick. Well, that's it for another week of the Rules of Investing. I hope you enjoyed the show. That'll be the last regular episode for the year, 
but I'll be doing a special fun holiday episode in two weeks' time where I'll be getting my friend and former guest on the podcast, Eric Starr, from Elliston Capital, to turn the tables and interview me. In the meantime, please subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, at Livewire Markets, and visit our website, livewiremarkets.com. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>